Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida historian Michael Gannon died on Monday, April 10th at the age of 89. We'll remember him with an interview about his life and work. The church was always a, a partner of Spanish expansion, and indeed some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system uh, preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. We'll discuss the letter book of Governor John Milton, which was almost destroyed in a fire. The letter book really is an incredible glimpse into the workings of the governor's office during uh, the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history, at least on U.S. soil. And talk about the B-52 bomber in Orlando. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida historian Michael Gannon died on Monday, April 10th at the age of 89. Dr. Gannon was author or editor of 10 books, including The Cross in the Sand from 1965. In that book, Gannon demonstrated how the real first Thanksgiving happened in St. Augustine in 1565, decades before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. A longtime professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Dr. Gannon taught several generations of Florida historians who are working in the state today. Gannon was formerly a Catholic priest and was working in St. Augustine in the early 1960s as the town was preparing to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the founding of America's oldest continuously occupied city. We spoke with Dr. Gannon as St. Augustine was preparing to commemorate their 450th anniversary in 2015. There were a number of individual and institutional contributions to the 400th anniversary and then there was a citywide coordinating committee that oversaw a lot of other activity collectively. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, there were two major products of our efforts. I say I, being a priest historian with the Diocese of St. Augustine at the time. First at the Old Mission, uh, where the first parish mass was celebrated on September 8, 1565, it was decided to build a cross 
because that was central to the original ceremony where Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross. And Menendez came on land, knelt, and kissed the cross. And so um, Archbishop Joseph P. Hurley of the Diocese of St. Augustine thought it best to highlight the church's contribution by the erection of a very large cross. And ultimately, it was constructed of stainless steel and rose to a height of 208 feet. I think it is still the tallest freestanding cross in the Western Hemisphere. And I think it's very impressive. It, uh, it's stately. It has a wonderful design that was done by an architectural firm in Boston, Massachusetts. It um, can be seen 14 miles out to sea, and it's grown among and upon uh, the people who live in this community and has become a symbol of the first mission to the North American natives and the first parish erected by Europeans in this country. Also part of St. Augustine's 400th anniversary was the construction of a contemporary church called the Prince of Peace and a bridge linking the church with the historic mission grounds. Plans were made for a library and research center on the property, but funding was not available. Today, visitors to the mission site can also see the statue of Father Francisco Lopez. That statue was erected in the 1950s. It was executed by a distinguished Yugoslav sculpture, sculptor, Ivan Mestrovich. But it was placed at, in a copse of trees where it did not stand out against a dark background. And um, the plan that the architects in 1965 came forward with was to move it to a site on open ground where the figure of Father Lopez with his arms in the air would stand out against the sky. And now, at long last, the statue has been moved to that space, and you can see the dramatic difference in uh, the figure of Father Lopez as he's seen completely and clearly now against uh, the sky, and directly in front of the cross, which stands behind him. As the Spanish began exploring and colonizing Florida, the Reformation movement was underway in Europe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VIII, and other Reformation leaders were protesting various practices of the Catholic Church and forming Protestant religions. In an effort to maintain its power and influence, the Catholic Church launched the Counter-Reformation. Part of that effort was to send Catholic missionaries around the world, including the New World of Florida. Michael Gannon explains that Spanish imperialism and Catholicism were inextricably linked. The two efforts were coterminous. Uh... Everywhere uh, Spain moved politically and economically and militarily, the church moved too. Uh, the church was always a, a partner of Spanish expansion. And indeed, some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system uh, preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. And uh, you can certainly see that in the interior missions of Florida during the 17th century where um, Missions stood out in the wilderness, uh, apart from all of the other examples of Spanish colonial existence. 
and the friars of the Franciscan order lived very lonely lives servicing their people. So the church was in the forefront. If, uh, if, if, if you want to uh, uh, select any part of the Spanish cultural presence in Florida and the rest of the Spanish provinces of North America, you would have to say the, the church was in advance of all other institutions. St. Augustine is the site of the first Christian church in what would become the United States. As Michael Gannon points out, St. Augustine is also the site of our country's first school, first hospital, first court of law, first market, and first city plan. As the Franciscan missionaries tried to convert the Tamuquan Indians who inhabited the region, they discovered that the natives had no written language. A friar named Francisco Pereja developed a phonetic written version of the Tamuquan language, preserving it for us today. Although the Tamuquan people no longer exist, Michael Gannon brings their language to life by reciting the first sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Heka itamile numa hiban tema bisa milanema abak wano leta habema balunu nane mima noho boni habe. A bronze plaque at the mission site in St. Augustine shows the locations of dozens of missions scattered throughout Florida and the southeastern portion of North America. The attempts to convert Florida's indigenous peoples met with varied results. The natives were both welcoming and hostile, depending on the tribe. Uh, when the first missionary to attempt a pacifist approach to the natives he being uh, a Dominican friar who landed at Tampa Bay, uh, the Indians were extremely hostile. They killed him at once. And prior to that, when a number of Franciscan friars and secular priests came with the second expedition of Juan Ponce de Leon to Florida in 1521 on the lower Gulf Coast, they were attacked by the Calusa natives of the site and driven back into the sea. Uh, so it depends. Uh, uh, in uh, most other particulars, uh, the, the native peoples were welcoming, particularly in northern Florida. And that's where the Franciscans had their great successes when they came here in, beginning in 1573 and built missions up the Atlantic coast as far as the border between Georgia and South Carolina. And in the early 17th century, they moved westward across the peninsula and were generally welcome wherever they went and created their greatest number of missions up around the Appalachian country uh, centered on present-day Tallahassee. Those natives had been very hostile to earlier Spanish expeditions in the first half uh, of the 16th century. But in the mission century, they were very accommodating and welcoming to the Franciscan friars. So it, it depends. On, on balance, uh, the natives welcomed uh, the Christian religion and its principal exponents, the Franciscans. The native populations were not the only people who the Spanish missionaries tried to influence. As the British began establishing colonies to the north, the Spanish in Florida tried to encourage runaway slaves to embrace Christianity. Michael Gannon. First of all, during the Spanish period, when a large number of African slaves in 1740 and afterwards escaped from British plantations in the Carolinas, passed through Georgia and down to St. Augustine, where they were given their freedom. 
and where Christianity was preached to them and where they were baptized and began to live normal Christian lives alongside their Spanish and Indian uh, cousins. This was the first Underground Railroad as these African-Americans, as you can call them by that date, sought freedom and did so by going to the protection of the Spanish flag and the Christian church. Generally, the slaves from the British plantations were never given the opportunity to learn the Christian religion because it taught the, it taught the dignity of the individual person. And that's something the slave owners didn't want the slaves to learn about. Michael Gannon told President Kennedy about the extensive history of Catholicism in Florida when they met on November 18, 1963. President Kennedy's Catholicism had been an issue for him during his election campaign, and he gave a national speech on the topic to reassure voters. The Florida Chamber of Commerce arranged the meeting between Michael Gannon and President Kennedy as St. Augustine was preparing for their 400th anniversary celebration. It was hoped by the Chamber of Commerce and by the city fathers in St. Augustine that the president would agree to come down earlier rather than later. Uh, it was uncertain if he would be elected to a second term, so they wanted him to come while president and to build up interest in the city that would help generate tourist traffic uh, for the 400th year. And so it was arranged for me to meet with the president at MacDill Air Force Base Officers Club, and I did so. Uh, present were the president and myself, together with the White House photographer, a photographer from the Tampa Tribune, and a Secret Service agent named Gerald Blaine. And the president and I met for 15 minutes or so. I brought him a photographic copy of the oldest written record of American origin, which was a parish register of a matrimonial uh, sacrament. Um, the marriage between two Spaniards, a man and a woman, here in the city of St. Augustine, dated in 1594. And uh, he seemed to be very grateful to receive the gift of a photographic copy that was beautifully framed by Victor Rayner, a photographer here in uh, St. Augustine. Well, uh, as he left, uh, he said to me, uh, what is your name again? I told him my name and he said, I'll keep in touch. But four days later, he was dead. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated on November 22, 1963. Florida historian Michael Gannon died on Monday, April 10th at the age of 89. He was a longtime professor of history at the University of Florida, the author and editor of multiple books on Florida history, the recipient of many awards, and a kind man who will be missed. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, watch archived editions of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. A house fire in the early 20th century nearly consumed some important historical documents. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here the letter book of Governor John Milton. Yeah, that's right. Uh, governor Milton was the fifth governor of the state of Florida, which had only been admitted to the Union in 1845. He was elected in 1860, was inaugurated in October of 1861, and served until 1865. Uh, now, Milton was not a native Floridian. He was actually born in Georgia in 1807, became a lawyer, worked in Alabama, Georgia, New Orleans, uh, had spent some time in Florida serving with the Georgia militia during the Indian Wars. And then in the 1840s, he finally made Mariana in Jackson County his permanent home in 1846. But Milton was known long before he ever came to Florida as a brilliant orator and was a bit of a firebrand. He was an ardent states' rights advocate. So in the 1850s especially, this was a very raucous time for American politics, especially in the South, and Florida being a big part of that scene. And when Milton came to Florida, he sort of jumped right into the uh, political situation in Tallahassee. He was elected to the Florida State House of Representatives, served one term, and then, as I said before, was elected governor in 1860. Now, it's interesting to point out what Florida was like at that time. So according to the 1860 census, the population of the state was only 140,000 individuals, uh, 61,000 of whom were, were slaves. So the economy of Florida was uh, heavily dependent upon upon slave labor, which of course was linked to the beginnings and the origins of what would become the American Civil War. And Governor Milton was a, a slave owner himself. He had a large plantation known as Sylvania outside of Mariana. He had uh, close to 50 slaves. So he certainly believed in slavery as a means for the preservation of what he felt were the rights of the southern states and the rights specifically of the state of Florida at that time. Now, these documents are from Milton's time as governor of Florida. What sort of things are we looking at here? Well, we have in the possession of the Florida Historical Society Library a really incredible collection of documents known as the Governor's Letter Book. Now, a letter book is a compilation of transcripts of letters that were both sent and received from the governor's office during his term. So uh, we have the first half of the book. It dates from his inauguration in October of 1861 till about mid to late 1863. The second half of the journal is actually in the possession of the State Library and Archives in Tallahassee. Now, we're actually looking at the original transcripts. And, and you'll notice the pages are somewhat fragile. That's because they were involved in a fire in the mid-teens. Governor Milton's grandson, William Milton, who served as a U.S. senator in the early part of the 20th century, was in possession of this letter book. Uh, his home unfortunately caught on fire sometime around 1915, 1916. And these letters were inside of a tin box. And luckily, he was able to get them out before the, the flames engulfed the entire uh, building. But we lost a lot of original letters that were part of the, the Milton collection. So 
the letter book really is an incredible glimpse into the workings of the governor's office during uh, the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history, at least on U.S. soil, of which, as I mentioned before, Florida was a, a very big part of. So the, the nature of the letters are fairly interesting, too. So keep in mind that Florida was the third state to secede from the Union in 1861. In fact, Florida had already seceded before Governor Milton had even taken office. And a lot of these letters deal with the logistics of maintaining a war within the South. Now, Florida contributed approximately 15,000 soldiers to the Confederate cause, and that was through volunteers and also uh, through conscription. Now, that was per capita more than any other Southern state. Uh, Many of these young men, of course, never came back to the state of Florida, and it had a disastrous effect on the economy of the state. And we can see that through a number of letters. Here we're looking at a letter from mid-1863, and it says here, quote, we, the undersigned citizens of Polk County, unquote. And it goes on to explain the nature of what's happening in Polk County in 1863. This is halfway through the war. Supplies are are extremely limited because the state of Florida is sending all of its cattle and salt and other agricultural products to the armies in the field. So here you have these families and people who are trying to survive, and many of whom were subsistence farmers, trying to survive, uh, who were struggling quite a bit. And this letter, here we have 50 citizens of Polk County who signed the letter, and they're asking the governor, please, to uh, allow them to not be conscripted into Confederate service, because in 1860, there were 175 eligible voters. And of those 175 eligible voters, there were less than 50 who were in the entire county by 1863. The rest were either employed by the Confederacy somewhere else, or they had been killed in battle. So on the home front, Milton was dealing with a lot of serious domestic issues. And the Confederate government at the time wasn't providing them with uh, very many resources. There were no rail lines coming into Florida or connecting to any other southern states. Uh, So the governor was constantly pleading with Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States of America, for supplies, for military assistance. All the while, the Union forces are uh, controlling most of the major port towns in Florida. Armies are making four into the interior and the state of Florida and the citizens of Florida were were suffering quite a bit. Well, tell us what happened to Governor Milton after the Civil War. Well, I mentioned that uh, he served until 1865. Of course, the war ended in April of 1865, and Governor Milton did not see the end of the war. He was found with a gunshot wound to his head in his home in in Mariana. Now, no one can prove for certain, it's believed to have been suicide, and and most of that comes from the fact that one of the last speeches he gave to the state legislature, uh, he's quoted as saying that he would prefer death to reunion. And again, being the strong Southern man, he went down with the ship, so to speak, and again, never saw Florida's reunion union that came a few years later. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Osmer Lewis is a student in the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. He has this look at the history of the B-52 bomber in Orlando. The B-52 was crucial to McCoy, beginning with World War II, continuing through Vietnam, really. It was a home for the B-52, a training ground for the B-52, and uh, uh, really contributed uh, not only to our military successes, but also a great deal to the economy of Orlando. That was Dr. James Clark from the University of Central Florida who talked to me about the role of the B-52 in Orlando's history. At Orlando International Airport, on a small lot just off of Bear Road, sits a B-52 bomber 
two dedication plaques, and not much else that would separate B-52 Memorial Park from any other public park. As one of the last remnants of the now defunct McCoy Air Force Base, the park does little to remind visitors of the rich military history of McCoy Air Force Base and the city of Orlando. Bases further south and bases further west had reluctance. As, uh, as you know, in 1957 and 1972, there were crashes here in Orlando and other emergencies. And so I think that the uh, Army Air Corps and later the Air Force were looking for a place where they could be alone. And South Florida certainly did not want that. People don't realize that the first supersonic planes were tested here and then moved out to California because they were worried about crashes. Unlike Medill over in Tampa or the southern uh, Florida bases, we had lots of room for uh, airplanes to to crash. We had uh, lots of room for them to carry out bombing uh, exercises, and uh, we had extremely long runways. I think that the open spaces uh, were the primary draw here, uh, and our geographic location, just as it uh, years later would draw the space program to Cape Kennedy. Soon, growth in Central Florida led city leaders and the Air Force to negotiate a different relationship. The biggest reason was Walt Disney. In uh, the early 1960s, the city of Orlando and the Air Force signed an unusual deal to share the Air Force base. People still shake their heads at this because nobody thought this would ever happen. But basically, one runway was turned over to the city of Orlando. At the time, it wasn't really uh, an inconvenience. Delta Airlines started flights uh, going in there, but most of the business remained at the Herndon Airport, downtown Orlando. Here, Dr. Clark explains what led to Orlando International Airport replacing McCoy Air Force Base. Once Disney opens uh, in uh, 1971, millions and millions of tourists begin flying in here, and what was a kind of secondary use for the airport suddenly becomes the primary use for the airport. So I think the coming of Disney, I also think the coming of the uh, space program at the Cape played a huge role. Suddenly you have companies like Martin with thousands of employees here and executives coming in and out. You have NASA officials coming in and out and using the Orlando airport rather than the uh, small airport in Titusville. And so you just have this tremendous boost in traffic. And I'm not sure the Air Force could have remained there. It's hard to keep flying uh, top secret flights when you've got millions of passengers a year coming in and out of there. After McCoy Air Force Base closed down in 1975, the city of Orlando opened B-52 Memorial Park on April 17, 1985. Although there are a few subtle references to the old base, I wanted to know why Orlando's military history was able to be so silently swept into obscure history. I think that people just don't associate Orlando with a military base. Uh, we've renamed it uh, from McCoy Air Force Base, named after a, a pilot who was killed in a crash here in Orlando, to Orlando International Airport. Although 
for millions of flyers, it must be a kind of a mystery. Their luggage tag still says MCO, uh, and they must wonder what the heck that stands for. But uh, other than that, there's really nothing to let people who fly in and out of here know that, hey, this was once a, a major defense base. I'm Osmer Lewis, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida, and you are listening to Florida Frontiers. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen to Florida Frontiers anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or catch us as a podcast. Don't miss our television series version of Florida Frontiers on your local PBS affiliate. You can also watch archived editions of the program at myfloridahistory.org. Join the conversation on Facebook as well at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.